and have a seat. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we come before you, um, before the words of our King and Savior, and I just feel the, the deep need for your Spirit to be with us, your Spirit to bless this time that we've set aside uh, to, to receive from you. So in your grace, would you be, be amongst us? Would you open our hearts to your word? Uh, would you draw our eyes to you and the glorious gospel by which you've called us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. Always think of Sojourn and Traverse City in general as kind of Gracetown. Y'all got great food, great coffee, and just way too nice to me as just a small-town Baptist pastor. And, uh, before I was a small-town Baptist pastor wearing Mr. Rogers' cardigans and raising chickens, um, <laughs> I was a little bit of a wanderer, a little bit of a, a beatnik, if you will. Uh, three weeks into my senior year of college, I dropped out. And believe it or not, my parents were actually kind of cool with it. Not cool, they were okay with it. Um, one thing they weren't okay with was uh, a week later, kind of on a whim, I bought a one-way ticket to Argentina and just kind of just left. Uh, and the, the plan was to learn Spanish. So I enrolled at a language school down there uh, for a few months and got good enough at Spanish to, you know, to be dangerous. And then I uh, quit taking classes and just spent a little over a month just backpacking around, uh, living out of my backpack. And some of it was, you know, hostile living, kind of bouncing from town to town. Uh, but the goal was to get to the mountains, get to Patagonia, and went down south in Argentina, and then crossed over the border into Chile, and uh, just got to see some unbelievably beautiful places uh, in, in the world. Just incredible, you know, snow melt mountain ponds, like up in the mountains, and uh, flocks of parakeet flying over me on the coast of Chile as the sun sets. Just staggeringly beautiful things. I think I actually have a picture of some of my wandering. There's me. Look how, look how hard I am. Yeah. Uh, uh, doing my millennial thing, trying to find myself, and uh, it gets too cool to smile. Um, it was also the loneliest time of my life by far, and I realize this is kind of, you know, first world problem since I, like, went and took, took this adventure upon myself, but, you know, I was a college dropout, so I was traveling super, super cheap. I had it dial- all dialed in, you know, I was down to one meal a day, and I would uh, take buses between cities because uh, then I wouldn't have to pay for uh, a hostel, a place to stay at night. And so I spent just a lot of time, you know, like the late night hours waiting at these sketchy bus stations on the laying on the, on the cold tile. And I'd let my hair grow out and my beard get a little bit longer. And uh, we just, I was kind of the, the guy with the big backpack that the, the parents would kind of, you know, shepherd their, their children, children away from. And uh, so it was, it was just staggeringly staggeringly lonely. And then two days before Christmas, I, I, I came home. I walked into the home that I grew up in, and my whole family was there, my dad and my mom and my brother and my two sisters. My, my sister was uh, like eight or nine at the time, and she ran towards me squealing and jumped into my arms, and the house was full of good food and Bing Crosby singing Christmas carols. And I think actually I have a picture of this, these shenanigans. Yeah, it's up there. Um, I don't know why we put our sisters on our shoulders, but we were just all jacked up on Christmas ham or something and, and, and did that after the Christmas Eve service. And, uh, and, and for some reason, this memory really sticks into my head is that uh, while I had been gone, they'd got new carpet, uh, this brand new, very lush, co- cozy carpet. And I remember just lying on the carpet, smelling all the smells, having people that loved me and moved towards me, having all my needs met and just feeling like I am home, like home had a whole new meaning to me. 
And I tell this story because the cry of my heart is that we would come to understand repentance as that, as that experience of leaving the far country, leaving the place where people move away from you and don't give you anything uh, to the place where people move towards you and all your needs are met. The other thing that I want to talk about today is that this idea of repentance, this idea of repentance is coming home, is is our daily bread, is, is, is something that marks our lives as Christians. So we're going to dive in to these two passages here, and my prayer is just that we'd let Scripture spark our imaginations and that we would submit our hearts and minds to see what Scripture says about, about repentance. Let me read the, the Mark passage. This is Mark 1. 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is at the core of Jesus's message and so much of his teaching, you could say probably all of his teaching, all comes back, connects back to this idea of repentance. And for, for a while now, the connection between what it means to flourish as a human and repentance has just been really heavy on my heart. <clears throat> because I think repentance, and, and for a lot of us, might have some uh, religious baggage. It's, it's a word that can, is scary, that can be used uh, to kind of bully people. But if it's so central to the message of the man that we claim to follow, then I feel like we should have a pretty good and strive to have an accurate understanding of what this looks like. So just looking at some of the terms here on, in this passage, this is, G, this is a Mark's summary of Jesus' message, like what he was going around proclaiming. <clears throat> and he says, uh, first he says gospel, a word that uh, might be familiar to a lot of us, but you know, essentially just means glad tidings, good news. And we think of <clears throat> the gospel like something that we have to kind of laboriously go around and uh, tell people about, otherwise we'll feel guilty uh, but what, what would it be like to consider we need to preach glad tidings, go and preach glad tidings? But the, the confusing thing is, is how is repentance glad tidings? Or what would it be about repentance that would make it good news, that this call to repentance is good news? And I think the term, the kingdom of God, being at hand, that idea is something that brings a lot of clarity to it. Tim, Pastor Tim Keller defines the kingdom of God as life with God under his rule. And it's a very intimate, it's a very uh, a relationally uh, charged understanding of, of what the point of everything is. And when you think of sharing the gospel, it's Jesus died for your sins, so now that you can go to heaven. And yes and amen, that is, that is true. But you notice that Jesus doesn't say any of that here. His, the summary of his teaching doesn't, doesn't have any of that. Instead, it says the kingdom of God is at hand, so we repent and believe this good news. And it's, it's relational because it's kind of got, to the, those two parts are, are deeply connected with how we relate to God. We experience life with God. The kingdom of God is life with him. And then there's a submission part. We, we experience life with him under his rule. We live in the joy of submitting to the one who invented everything and knows how everything is supposed to operate. And so within this paradigm of Jesus' message, I want us to ask the question, why is repentance good news? And before we get to that, would you just take a, a hot second and reflect on 
what, what your understanding of, of repentance is. Was it, is it a one and done kind of deal? Like when you were nine, you repented and acknowledged, you know, generally that you were a sinner and, you know, haven't looked back. You know, is it the scary word that sweaty preachers, you know, yell, yell at you or a dude on the street with a me- megaphone screams at you? Or does, you know, it conjure up images of like the albino, albino guy in the Da Vinci Code, you know, who's like whipping himself, that creepy scene, you know, we just feel terrible, repentance is feeling terrible and heavy and guilty and miserable. If those things are true, then why is it part of Jesus's good tidings, glad tidings, his good news? That brings us to the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I think this is one of the most uh, helpful par- paradigms uh, of, for understanding, understanding repentance. Stories are incredibly vivid, and whenever a king gives us a story, we do well to kind of dive into it and let it shape our hearts and minds. So flipping your Bibles over to, to Luke 15, I want to just kind of walk through this parable and just see some of the different phases, some of the different uh, components of, of repentance that we would see in the story, and then seek to kind of line our lives up to it. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Uh, We're just going to go through verse 13. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The younger son says to his dad, effectively, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. I would rather you just die and give me my inheritance now because I want your stuff and not you. I'd rather have your stuff than be experience life with you under your rule as, you know, as father of the house, as man of the house. And this shows us the need for repentance. Incredibly, the father does it. And if you, you know, have the flannel graph version in your background somewhere in Sunday school, we lose the, the, the sting, the incredible scandal of what the, what the younger brother is saying here, just the, the devastating pain uh, and just relational destruction that this would have, and also just economic destruction, for the, the father to then you think, think about him selling land that had been in the family for generations and generations to give, you know, to give cash to his son, liquidating assets, letting servants that have been a part of the family for years go so that he could give his son what he asks. But the good news is the son goes and becomes a respectable you know, citizen, using wealth for the common good in a different country, right? No, he squanders it on reckless living, on prostitutes and feasts, he just burns through it. He goes to Vegas and goes crazy. Weird part uh, about my dad is that he has this fascination with professional athletes who file bankruptcy. I don't, I don't know why, but he read an article in the ESPN magazine like 2001 and has probably talked about it, you know, at least four times a year ever since then. He still has the, you know, yellowed article hanging. He cut it out and hanging in his office. And there was one, and there was little like blurbs about how they did it. And one of the guys, you know, got his multi-million dollar deal and would just charter jets and pack it full of his friends and go to Vegas and just pay everything. He just had like a whole jet full of friends uh, going crazy for a weekend rager in Vegas, just like over-the-top decadence, you know, the kind of like wake up with a tiger in your hotel room kind of, kind of situation. 
And so we, we laugh at that, but it's really that, that egregious. Imagine, you know, your family's stuff, your family's wealth being just burnt on a weekend rager in Vegas. He rejects his father uh, to get his father's stuff. He tries to get the stuff to satisfy him. And, and this, friends, is just, this is the reality of our sin. It's a very much a relational thing. It's not a breaking of rules primarily. It's a breaking of relationship. The rules we break break the relationship that we have with God. All of us have looked at the God of the universe, the source of all good and joy and pleasure, and we've rejected him, and we take his stuff to try to build our own kingdom that we can live on our own rules. Look how it ends up for this guy. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and it began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So there he is with nothing, hungrier than pigs, worse off than the pigs, like the owner cared more for the pigs than than he did for this guy. And, you know, to me, pigs are awesome. Like, you know, they can take, like, an apple core and turn it into bacon. Um, I think that's a Jim Gaffigan joke or something. But in this culture, pigs were about as low as low as you could get because it was a Jewish culture. And so Jesus is, like, reaching for the most, like, in-your-face, like, desperate, pathetic place that this man could be. So he's there with nothing, and he's longing to eat the pig slop. He's longing to eat what the pigs eat. And this is the, the context of repentance. It's in this kind of setting that repentance can come. He has nothing, he's filthy, he's hungry, he's desperate. And what's crazy, if you see here, at this point, he's still grinding. He's still like trying to live under his rule. He's just like, I'm hungry, what's around me? The pig slop. He's desiring pig slop. You think about just the, 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 the fall from whatever delicacies he might have had in his feasting days to where he, he's not even blinking. He's just going on to the next thing. Like, let's go to the pig slop. But here we start to see some hope in the heart of repentance. Look, look at just the first part of verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, there's so much in that one phrase, I think, because it's like the scales fell from his eyes, and he finally saw himself sitting covered in pig excrement and, and wanting pig slop for food, and it just has that moment of, what am I doing? He finally saw himself clearly. This is the, the heart of repentance. Because before he came to himself, he, he's scheming. He's still in, like, in control trying to handle it. He's still scheming after the pig slops. But then he begins to see himself. The scales fall, and the heart of repentance involves coming to ourselves and seeing ourselves clearly. And in our day and age, it's just unbelievably easy to live miles away from ourselves, to distract ourselves to the point where we just have no idea what we're feeling, what's going on in our souls, uh, or just like this dude with the pig slops. We have no idea what we're really desiring after. We're just kind of grinding. We're just on to the next thing when if we take a step back, we realize we're, we're desiring pig slops. There's something deeply wrong with us that we would desire something so gross. So out of the heart of repentance, we see the language of repentance. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And then on to 18, we see the language of repentance. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. After getting the heart of repentance, this, uh, this brokenness, this seeing himself in his squalor as he really is, we see him own it. I have sinned against God and against my father. I don't deserve to be your son. I have no rights. I have no leg to stand on. There's not a single explanation that can make what I have done, my sin against you, any less catastrophic. We're all framing this around the question how repentance is good news, and it, it seems hard to connect it here. But the fact that repentance is good news does not mean that it doesn't hurt or that it doesn't have some sting. It requires us to see ourselves as we are, not just with some regrets, not just some live and learn moments, young and dumb moments, not just like I need a little pick-me-up in this area, but these areas are okay. None of that is, is, is the language of repentance, is true repentance. The language of true repentance is I have sinned against the almighty God of the universe. I have rebelled against the one true king and tried to live on the throne myself. If the heart of repentance is, what am I doing here? The language of repentance, repentance is, oh God, what, what have I done? What have I done to you? And we see the grace implicit in, in this guy's language. He says, please let me just be a servant. Just let me work for you. Because he's acknowledging that even to be your servant would be grace, would be a gift, would be something I don't deserve. I deserve rejection. I deserve wrath. I don't deserve anything. I just, I stand in the need of, need of grace. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, uh, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When he sits down to give his disciples what we have as one of the most extensive teachings of our King and Savior, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of God. I believe this is kind of the, the younger brother here is giving us a picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means spiritually bankrupt. Like you just, it's not just that your account, your spiritual account's at zero, it's that it's at negative 50 billion. There's just nothing to offer, no leg to stand on, no, no way to market it any worse than it is. My spiritual account is hopelessly empty, and I'm a beggar. And I don't know if you're like me, but the, the air I breathe is one of being competent, of having it together, of having something to offer, and to not needing that much. But here we see that part of receiving life with God under his rule is this poverty of spirit. It's not suggested, it's not just for super Christians or whatever, but a mark of Jesus' people, the mark of people who experience life with God under his rule as people who acknowledge their desperate need of grace, their, their complete spiritual bankruptcy. Next, we see the move of repentance. Look at the first part of 20. And he arose and came to his father. This is super important because repentance doesn't keep us in the pig slop. True biblical repentance doesn't keep us feeling bad about ourselves. He doesn't have that, that breakthrough moment where he says, oh God, what have I done? 
And then he just stays there and wallows in the guilt and shame. True repentance moves us towards the Father. He gets up and he returns to his Father. He doesn't get up and go to the shower first and clean up up some of the the pig funk. He doesn't uh, try to get a better job and save up some money. He just gets up and goes to the Father. Mark of true repentance we see is just a, a realization of repentance and then a return to the Father. We move towards the Father, but we don't have to go far. Look at the rest of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This dignified older man saw him from afar. He was on the lookout. When was the last time you saw your dad, your, your elderly dad, Run, run towards you. It's just, it's not what elderly people do. And in this culture, even less so, because they wore big robes. So we, you picture this rich, dignified man picking up his robes and just bolting through town to his lost son. This is the response of our gracious God towards, towards repentance. Jesus is showing us the, the heart of our Father that we see in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, that's that poverty of spirit. Oh God, you will not despise. This is the, the good news of repentance is that God runs to us. He felt compassion. He embraced him. This is the same father who was told, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. I'd rather have your stuff, your toys, than to know you. That same, same father who took that incredible relational blow is looking for him, saw him from afar. And runs to him. Just to put yourselves in, the, in, this, in this younger man's shoes. Imagine just living in deep guilt and shame for what you've done. Imagine the desperation of having no other options. Imagine being covered in pig excrement and pig funk and not, not even having the ability to clean yourself up or change your clothes or, or take a bath. And in your desperation, you go to ask for grace, fully expecting to be rejected. But when your father sees you, instead of coldness, he runs towards you and he wraps his arms around you. He gets the, the stink on him. He, he gets the pig funk on him. He kisses you with tears in his eyes. You start to, you start to mumble, what are you doing? Like, I, don't, I, don't, I'm not, I don't deserve this. I'm not your son anymore. Just let, me, just let me work for you. Just let me be one of your servants. But the father won't hear any of that. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Not only does he embrace them, does he embrace the son, but he takes your dirty rags and puts clean clothes on you. He puts a ring on you that marks you as his child, this extravagant piece of bling that only beloved sons get. And then he tells everyone, let's party. My son was dead, and now he's alive. Let's have a feast. You hear the language of killing a fat calf is kind of a biblical term, but it's a really fascinating thing to dive into because that would have been uh, hundreds of pounds of meat. And they didn't have fridges, right? So like when you kill a fattened calf, like everybody is eating as much as they can as fast as they can before the meat goes bad. It wasn't just like, oh, just box up the leftovers. It was like, we killed this calf. We're going to feast today, like ribeye for everyone. 
In our spiritual bankruptcy, we come deeply, deeply in debt, and we don't just get brought to zero. We don't just get forgiven, but we, we are flush with the cash of, of grace. And I, and I hope we can see the contrast here, that, we, that he was in the far country and he was broke. All the people who were partying with him scattered when his money runs out. No one would give him anything to eat. And then he comes to the father who gives him everything. My prayer is that when we hear the call to repent or we think about repentance in our lives, we'd hear the call to leave pig slops, leave the far country where nobody knows us and nobody cares and return in humility to a father who is waiting to embrace us and kiss us and dress us anew and throw a huge feast for us. Repentance requires us to go desperately, needing grace. Uh, having grace is our only hope. We, we go because we have no other options. We just want to serve to try to earn our keep, but God in his glorious grace will hear nothing of being a servant or slave. Look what Romans 8.15 says. I'm talking about people who have received the spirit of salvation. He said, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We receive the new clothes. We receive the, the mark of sonship. We go into a room full of good food and people who love us. And this is why the kingdom of God being at hand, life with God under his rule is, is good news. It's why repentance is good news. It's how we enter into this party, enter into this kingdom. Repentance is not feeling worthless. It's not paying penance and living with guilt until we feel like we've paid it back enough. It's not beating ourselves up all the time. It's turning from the slop and to the father. Am I... My hope is that this good news would then begin to mark our entire lives. It would flavor how we understand what it means to be a Christian in the world. There's this guy named Martin Luther. Uh, he started the Protestant Reformation, and he wasn't perfect. I don't know what you know about him, but he's also probably the reason why you and I are in this room today. Changed human history forever by nailing 95 theses to a door in, 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 on a church in, in Germany. 95 statements, 95 things that he saw in Scripture. The very first one of these 95 theses that shattered the, the narrative of human history and forever altered it is this. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And unless we have this idea that repentance is good news, that it's coming home to our Father's gracious embrace, that sounds kind of exhausting. That sounds miserable. But if it's leaving the far country in isolation and desperation, leaving the pig slops, then, it, then it's good news. But we can see that this isn't something that we do, you know, at summer camp when they've lulled us into a trance with a praise chorus and we, you know, pray a prayer and repent of our sin. Uh, but this is something that we do all day, every day, minute by minute. We, we see where, where we are longing for pig slops and need to return. So question for you today and this week, what is your far country? What are your, what are your pig slops? Where, where, where are your desires, you know, just pointed at something as dumb as pig slops, something as so obviously will not satisfy you as pig slops? And I have a, a test for you if that's something that is difficult to, to suss out. And this, is, this, this test slays me every time. 
slayed me this morning. It's called the so what test. And the so what test is when you're experiencing turmoil, emotion turmoil or anxiety or something about something and, uh, and, and the gospel comes to mind that you receive this grace through Jesus Christ that God, the God of the universe looks on you with delight and you say, so what? So what if my kid is sick? So what if I'm failing in my job? What, what, what good is it to have this with God if I, don't have, if I can't pay my bills or if people don't like me or I don't feel loved by my spouse? Where we can kind of stare these glorious truths of the gospel and just be like, so, so what if I, if I don't have this other thing? That other thing is your pig slops. I had, to, I had to repent of this this morning, feeling, feeling anxiety about preaching before you. And it wasn't anxiety that I would mishandle the word of God or that about lost people that might need to hear the word, word of God. It was anxiety about you guys liking me or me doing a good job. You see, like, the, the slop of that? Like, really? That's what you want? Like, you had to stand up and proclaim the gospel and you, you're worried about that? So with this understanding of repentance... This understanding of sin, I hope we can see how the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance, of leaving the slops, begging God daily, hourly, minutely. Uh, let me feel your embrace. Let me feel the embrace of grace. And the beautiful thing is that this is where that great verse in, in Romans, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, really becomes real to us. Because now, whenever our sin comes up, we don't feel condemnation, we feel conviction. And we let our sin, we let our anxiety and our lust and our anger and our, our unbelief, we let, it, let that turn and draw us to the Father. That's why there's no condemnation, because we can take everything. It's all been paid for. It's all been forgiven in the cross. This is how God redeems the sin in our lives, even after we're saved, is that he lets it draw us to his embrace of grace. Practically, we do this repentance privately with God. But James 5, James 5 says, we confess our sin to one another. And I think this is really piercing because if you're like me, it feels a lot easier to confess my sin to God, to get alone by myself and confess my sin to God. But why, why is that? And what, what we see about human life is that the, the horizontal is going to reveal the vertical. The horizontal, if we love one another, it shows us that the love of the Father is in us. Same with repentance. I think we're, we're lying to ourselves if we're like, oh yeah, I repent and confess my sin to God, but I don't want to tell anybody in the real world. Are, are we really honestly repenting? Are we really honestly feeling the weight of our sin? What would it look like for you to grab a brother or sister and create a safe place to confess sin and pray? I'm not saying go crazy, like this requires some trust and some relational equity or whatever, but I think this horizontal practice of confessing our sin to one another, repenting uh, to, to one another, can make the vertical reality of life with God under his rule so much more vivid to us. And what feels heavy on my heart is that I think it, one of the liabilities of being in church a long time is that we can kind of get the first part of repentance, the, the kind of the heart, the like, what have I done? The what am I doing? The I'm bad part. And then, then we return to the Father and we duck out from his embrace. He like tries to hug us and we're like, no, 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 no. Just, just, let, me, just let me serve, just let me do. 
that's not the co- that's not the gospel. Doing stuff for God is not the same as experiencing life with God, abiding in Christ, and producing fruit from within that relationship. The gospel is our manna. When God's people, the Israelites, were out in the wilderness, they had no food, and God daily sent them bread from heaven. But if they collected more than they needed for a day, what happened? It started to rot. They couldn't eat it the next day. And this is this is how I I want us to. To view repentance, that like repentance that we did at youth camp when we were 15 uh, needs to be renewed every day, every day. Every day we come, we come home, we leave the slop and we come home to our father's embrace. But how can this be possible? How can such good news exist? We consider the, the, the offense, the rejecting of the good father's uh, love for his stuff. How can we hope to experience this grace? Look at verse 23 and 24. The father said, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. To state the obvious, something died so that this repentance party could happen. What was it for us that we might know the Father's embrace? It was Jesus Christ. The, he was the, the only son that lived life perfectly in the Father's embrace. He never rejected God for his stuff. He never rebelled against the Father's perfect will. But on the cross, all of our rebellion, all of our rejection, all of our abuse of God's good things were put on him, and he paid for them. But then he rose again, so like the prodigal, we could, who were dead could be made new. And this brings us to the Lord's Supper. A calf was killed so that they can eat and celebrate. Does it ever strike you as weird that churches sometimes use a language, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper? Let's celebrate the time where we come and remember that Jesus' body was crushed and that his blood was shed? But it's the same idea. His body was given to us and his blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven and that we can receive grace. Instead of getting the just wrath of a holy God that we have rejected and rebelled against, we get a loving father's embrace by grace. We get brought into a party of the good life with him forever. So as you come forward today, the ushers can come forward. We come to eat and celebrate of the Lord's Supper. I pray that, that we would have a renewed experience of the father's embrace by grace. Let me pray. Almighty God, tender father, we praise you for the sweetness of this message of grace. Father, I pray in your mercy that you would uh, come, to, come to us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate the execution of our King and Savior, and remember that he's alive, that he's coming again, uh, that he's raised a new life so that we too can experience new life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts to this good news of repentance that you would let us leave the slops of people's expectations or wanting to be impressive or whatever it is, Father. Holy Spirit, would you make that clear to us as we partake of the Lord's Supper? And Father, would we, uh, would we know the joy of returning home uh, day by day into your, your embrace of grace? In Jesus' name, amen.